This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We've been living with the impacts of climate change for years, but those impacts don't all hit the same way. For some, the ramifications are immediate. We go onto our back porch and my husband picked up hot embers and we looked out and saw flames that appeared to be in our lower property. For others, it can mean combating systems of oppression that have made the climate crisis worse. Climate change isn't just about protecting the natural world. It's also about protecting our culture and and who we are because we've resisted against so many colonial forces for so long. Those experiences can be traumatic and affect our mental and physical health in real ways. Humans are experiencing Serious distress that can manifest as PTSD, anxiety, depression. What does it mean to live with a disrupted climate? Climate One conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency, the individual and the systemic, the exciting and the scary, people who are in power and people who don't have access to power. The impacts of climate change can come fast or slow. A wildfire amplified by drought may rip through a town in a matter of hours, or rising seas may take years to destroy a neighborhood. Health impacts may show up in months or as devastating cancer rates that rise over a decade. Regardless of speed or intensity, the climate emergency will impact us all. This week's show is part of Covering Climate Now, a global journalism collaboration strengthening coverage of the climate story. Today, my guests are Tamara Conry, a former teacher and survivor of the deadly 2018 wildfire in Paradise, California, Julia Faye Bernal, director of the Pueblo Action Alliance in New Mexico, and Britt Ray, a researcher focused on the intersection of mental health and the climate crisis. I first moved to Paradise in 1990 as a newlywed to uh, raise a family. Our cousin said it's where the newly wed and the nearly dead exist. <laughs> That's how we got our welcome into paradise. Tamara Conry was living in paradise when it was devastated by a historic wildfire in 2018. She and her first husband raised their two girls there. In 2012, she and her current husband bought a new house in the town, located in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains in Northern California. We found this house that we just loved. It was uh, on the canyon, beautiful view, whether, you know, rain, snow, shine, it was just always beautiful. Um, just looking straight out at the canyon behind us in a nice little neighborhood. And we had difficulty getting insurance because back in 2008, there'd been a fire in Lower Paradise, further down, and it was pretty devastating. And even though we weren't on the same canyon that that fire was, our insurance company said, based on where you live, we can't insure you. And so we had to really search for uh, insurance companies and ended up paying a little bit more, but we finally found one. And take me to that night in 2018. It was called the campfire that destroyed paradise. What were you doing as news of the fire unfolded? Well, my husband and I woke up that morning And we opened our bedroom curtains open and said, wow, that's really a red sun this morning. Red sunrise. And my first thought was a good thing. And then my husband looked and he goes, that looks like there's a fire out there. So I immediately get on my phone and I found that there was a fire in Polga, which was the start of this fire. And it was like, okay, that's far enough away. We're on the 
the west side of the canyon, the, of Paradise, that canyon. And this was over on the east side, over some other hills. So we weren't worried until about 8.30 when the gal I had my appointment with, she does my nails. And at 8.30, she called me and said, Tamara, something's going on out there. There's sirens, smoke. And I said, really? And I told her I heard about this fire. Then her home phone rang. We're on cell phones and her home phone rang and she comes back to me and says, I got to go. We're being evacuated. So you think you have distance between you and the fire and you have time. Yes. And when did you start to get that lump in your stomach and say, we got to move or get out of here? Well, we had decided, my husband actually at first said, why don't you go ahead to work and I'll pack up some things. And I'm looking, I'm going, no, we're going to both pack up just both cars and then figure out, you know, what we're going to do. Cause you know, we got evacuated a year before and two days later, we, we were back. And so we didn't still think it would be that big of a deal, but we didn't actually get a call to evacuate. So that was 8.30 and around 9.30, my daughter, who lives in San Francisco but grew up in Paradise, calls me and says, you're not at home, are you? And I said, actually, I am. She goes, Mom, why are you at home? She's talking to one of her friends who works at um, a retirement home. That's over on the other side of town. And they're engulfed in a fire. So you hop in your car, you pack up and get in both your cars. Where did you go and what did you encounter trying to evacuate from your home in Paradise? Well, we actually went out onto our porch first, and my husband picked up hot embers that were on our porch. And we looked out and saw um, flames that appeared to be in our lower property. And we went into the house and looked around and just held each other for just a couple seconds and said goodbye to the house. And then we got out of there. And as we're leaving, neighbors were going by saying, oh, good, you're leaving. And I said, yeah, we're leaving right now. We called out to other neighbors. You've got to leave now. The fire's in our back property. By the time we got to the Skyway, we're sitting there a long, long time, not going anywhere. And I was in the front car. And when I pulled out, they had just opened up all five lanes to leaving. And so we were driving through looking at the trees and the houses on fire next to us. And at one point there was a car pulled over, not quite enough. So I had to keep edging to my right to get around it. And I was just freaked out that somebody might be in that car. And so again, I rolled down my window to look, but nobody was in the car. So I figured they had to desert it and hopefully gotten somebody else's. And and it, by the way, it was black. It was dark like night. And this is at 10 in the morning. And it was just black as night as we're driving through that fire. And when it's and putting along and all of a sudden it opened up and you felt like the daylight, like it just looked like it, everything just opened up. And there was this sense of relief and dread because our lanes, our two lanes that are normally the up are flowing quickly. And I look over and they're almost at a standstill in the other two lanes and people were coming over to get in and we were letting them in because now my fear is what we just drove through, 
how are they all going to survive that? So you run for your life and you get out and drive through the darkness and get through to the sky where you can see and breathe again. Um, what did you th think happened to your house and what happened when you went back to look at your house? Well, we watched the news all night and seeing the town is devastated. And because we saw the fire, what seemed like right on our property, um, we just assumed the house was gone. And for two days, we thought it was. And then a friend's um, brother uh, is a policeman. And he was up in paradise and went to look at her house. And she had him take a video outside. So we knew it was okay. And we said, what does the back look like? Okay, we know our house is there. And yet that's when the guilt really set in because I was reading on Facebook and calling and talking to friends and hearing about all these houses lost. Everybody's saying, okay, I saw a picture because nobody's allowed up there. It We ended up not being allowed up there for six weeks. The smoke damage was incredible. And when we went in, we looked like we're standing at a sliding glass door that goes out back and you could see soot in windowsills. Um, things, it's just smelled awful when we were in the house. And a few days before Christmas, we get this forwarded mail from Paradise from our insurance company telling us in January, when our policy was up, we were non-renewed. Mm. So, What was it like to read that letter? Oh, I, I lost it. So at this point, were you planning to stay and uh, rebuild your life in Paradise? Or were you planning to move? That's what we thought. <laughs> Um, that's what we thought in December. And then over Christmas, we took a drive to Southern California to see our kids. And whether we'd call it a mistake at the time, I thought it was a mistake, but maybe it was good. We drove through Malibu and I was crying the whole time. And so... Post-traumatic stress. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I definitely had PTSD. So did Tom. And I said, I know I wanted us to go this way, but this is just devastating. We didn't pay attention to this Malibu fire that happened. Literally, it started, I think, the same day. Like I said, I couldn't tell you any details about ours, theirs, because we were living ours. And it was just the most horrible drive. And I was crying the whole way. My husband's like, look out this way instead of that way. But it was just devastating. Tamara Conry and her husband decided not to move back to paradise. They were able to sell both their primary home and their rental home in nearby Megalia. I asked her how much she was thinking about climate change during all this. A couple of months after the fire, she attended a climate change rally in paradise. And it snowed and it was peaceful and beautiful. And again, every time we drove in and out, I told you we had to go up like every weekend and, and the tears would just flow. And so we knew we made the right decision. And I, we knew by the time we went to that rally that we were leaving. And it was just so, they held it in, on a property of somebody who lost their home and you just saw empty lots all around it. And it was, it was pretty devastating, but to just to all be together um, and to be talking about the issues of, of the climate was really a good thing for right about then. Where did you move and what climate-related risks are present in your new neighborhood? So we started looking around in Yuba City. We knew we didn't want to be 
over in Marysville or on the east side of Yuba City because of flooding. February of 2017, uh, the Oroville Dam almost bursts, and that made national news. It's one of the largest dams in the country. Exactly. And it almost burst, and we were up in paradise. So people were fleeing to paradise that winter. Uh, Yuba City and Marysville have had levee bursting problems. You know, when there's so much rain, which California hadn't had in so long, too much rain? What is that? But you didn't want to live where in a flooding area. Um, and so we made a point of only looking on the west side of Highway 99. And so we've been here in, it's called uh, South Yuba City, Bogue Ranch, and the very south end, so it's not um, a real busy area. It's a lot different than living on a canyon and looking at it at incredible view. We don't have an incredible view, so we made our backyard into an oasis during COVID. So you've living in a house that's about somewhere around half the size of before and feels like it's more not urban, but it's but it's not in surrounded by hills and trees that can can burn. How do you feel your relationship with climate disruption is now navigating this? <sighs> minefield of floods and fires. We we pay so close attention to it all. Um, whenever, you know, there was fires just last summer, fall that were in the Oroville area. And it made us think of all the people from Paradise that moved other places were now in a fire area. So whenever anything happens, it's the tornadoes. I have a friend in Kansas who just went through and cousins in Texas who just went through those horrible below zero temperatures and snowstorms. And it's very much a big part of our lives to just follow all of that. Um, I kind of, I feel like I did before. It's just more once you've lived through it, it's just foremost in your mind. Sometimes when people experience trauma, whether it's gun violence or fires or anything, when those things happen again, it can re-evoke that trauma. Does wildfires make you cry again like you did in Malibu? Well, I ended up having to uh, uh, have some antidepressant uh, anxiety medication that my doctor down here um, prescribed, prescribed for me so that I don't cry all the time, but I feel a, just a heaviness, you know, in my heart, I still feel that. Um, I think if I wasn't on this medication, I would be crying all the time. Thank you for sharing that. That's not easy. I've driven through some of those areas of the, of these fires. I, um, lose track of all the different names, but I've driven through, neighborhoods where one house is perfectly fine and the next one destroyed. And it just seems so random. That was our neighborhood. There was a whole group of us that had just gotten together three days before on the front porch area of the house right across the street from us. I would say the worst, one of the worst parts of all of it is we've lost contact. We we lost that feeling of the neighborhood and the people that do your hair and nails, you know, for literally 20 years. Yeah, there was there was a lot of loss. The town I lived in for almost 30 years, um, the place my daughters grew up, you know, all of that. And and then, you know, the friendships starting over in a new place is tough. 
Tamara Connery is a teacher union rep in California, former school teacher in Paradise, California, which suffered a devastating fire in 2018. Thank you so much, Tamara, for sharing your story and, you know, getting vulnerable here about living with climate change. Thank you. You're listening to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about what it means to live with climate disruption. Coming up, we'll hear from Julia Bernal, a member of the Sandia Pueblo in New Mexico, advocating for better water access and management in her community. After time, I realized that my my role in, in this life was to advocate for, for water because our views, our cultural views to the, to the river um, are very significant to like relationships with our mothers. And as a daughter, I just felt very compelled to pursue a lifelong career in um, water resources. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about living with climate disruption. Julia Faye Bernal grew up a member of the Sandia Pueblo Nation between the Sandia Mountains and the Middle Rio Grande Valley in New Mexico. I've had the best best life here. I've had a wonderful childhood growing up with um, a family that farms, a family that tends land, a family that... Um, has very strong roots to water and agriculture. Grew up riding horses, playing outside, getting dirty, getting cuts and bruises and scrapes. So it's definitely an upbringing that I really, really cherish. Today, she's director of the Pueblo Action Alliance, which advocates for the restoration of indigenous water management practices. That involves what she describes as the decolonization of water policy. She draws a lot of inspiration from her homelands and the long history of her people's connection to the Rio Grande. At a time before colonization, this middle Rio Grande Valley had multiple Tiwa-speaking villages. Now only two remain. And Pueblo people through time and experience on the land came to realize that settling along the Rio Grande was a good way for us to sustain life, a good way for us to maintain healthy watersheds, come up with irrigation systems, and become farmers and settle along the waters. And all of these tribes have a very significant and cultural relationship with the river and the water and we're we're all very different in the sense but we definitely do share that same core value of viewing our water as very sacred. What did the river mean to you personally as you were growing up? I grew up closer towards the river so I had a lot of access to playing along the acequias and as I got older, venturing a little bit further out to actually go to the main stem of the Rio Grande. And for me, going there was always a really, I guess, comforting experience being in relation with our river mother and maybe not fully understanding the cultural aspects of 
our river and how it plays in our traditions. But as a young person, I knew that there were there was an innate connection that I felt with our river. And even as I started growing up and experiencing adulthood at times in my life where I felt like I was lost or that I didn't have the right direction in terms of career or school or, you know, whatever measures success, (laughs) I would find myself find myself at the river contemplating, you know, what my next move is going to be. And, you know, after time, I realized that my my role in, in this life was to advocate for, for, for water because our views, our cultural views to the, to the river um, are very significant to like relationships with our mothers. And as a daughter, I just felt very compelled to pursue a lifelong career in um, water resources. Did the river speak back to you? I think that I've always spoken to the river (laughs) and (laughs) maybe it's more been that kind of relationship, but I think that the river to me is, is one of my mothers. And so I have sort of this innate responsibility to to protect her her essence to protect all that she provides for because in our cultures being desert you know cultured people water is very significant in terms of abundance and prosperity and longevity so our water is very central to a lot of our core teachings. So you grew up and went off to college. What did you study and what was your college experience like? Yeah, so I went to the University of Redlands. I honestly was really surprised that I got into a college because I was not a very good student growing up. (laughs) (laughs) So I definitely didn't have much direction. But I will say that my college experience was very hard. It was it was very associated with a different kind of culture shock. I felt like I couldn't fully express who I was because people in Southern California didn't understand like what a Pueblo indigenous person is or was or are. And navigating that academic system was really challenging. But along the way, I did meet some folks that worked with Southern California tribes and made some more connections in that world. And now it's coming full circle because a lot of our studies around water do also affect tribes, not just in New Mexico, but in Arizona and California within the sector of water tribal communities and leadership are going to be very integral for future planning. And uh, after you graduated, what happened next? I was at the river because I didn't know know what I wanted to do. Um, That was a really hard time for me. It took a lot of really deep thinking, a lot of time sitting by the water and trying to figure out what I was good at, 
what kind of skill sets I can develop over time. And I had a epiphany or something, a realization one day, and I knew that I wanted to get into water, but I knew I didn't have the environmental or science degree. So mm-hmm. I literally just started calling people. Julia ended up completing an indigenous water resource technician training program at the University of Arizona. She's currently pursuing master's degrees in water resources policy management and community regional planning. I asked her when she first realized climate disruption, manifest through water impacts, would be part of her life forever. When you leave home for for a couple years, four or five years, that's how long I was gone in California, was over five years. And when I came back, I really noticed a really drastic change in our in our weather patterns. And as I would talk to my dad more and more about his um, his irrigation season, um, my dad grows alfalfa for lot livestock feed and has been doing this for genera- um, generations as my great grandparents and you know have have all been in this um, in this type of work. He would say things to me like, I know that I'm not a scientist or anything like that, but I know that climate change is happening. And this is all by being outside and observing weather patterns and being more in tune with the natural world. I have been noticing even more so in the past four or five years that temperatures are really rising here in the Southwest and our water tables are not the same as they were before. There are some specific stretches of the real ground that are in Sandia that aren't as abundant as they used to be. Even the the Office State of Engineer advised irrigation water users to not irrigate this year. Do not farm. Do not farm <laughs> this year. And wow. for for native people, for also Asakia users, this is not an option regardless of how low production their fields and agriculture uh, parcels may produce, this is still a, a very integral part to local economies and self-sufficiency and and culture. You know, the culture of Pueblo irrigation and also Asakia users is under threat by climate change, and we're seeing that more severely as time as time moves on. What is a sacrifice zone and when did you start to understand that you are living in one? A sacrifice zone has been historically deemed as a particular landscape that is locally unwanted land use or they call them lulus. Um, and these national sacrifice areas or sacrifice zones, a lot of them are energy sacrifice zones, have been cultural landscapes that are resource rich and have been discovered, therefore exploited for their resources. And unfortunately, a lot of these deemed energy sacrifice zones are in 
proximities of living cultures, frontline indigenous people who experience a lot of the impacts that these these landscapes have undergone for for a really long time. Does that make you feel like your life is not as important as others? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's historically embedded in a lot of policies that are supposed to regulate these types of systems. Therefore, if there aren't any codes or ruling that ensure protections for people of color, then of course you're going to feel like you're expendable and therefore not as significant as other people. Julia Faye Bernal is director of Pueblo Action Alliance. So the personification of a uh, river as a, you know, not a resource, but a mother, how does that personification fit in with the campaign to achieve human rights for the river, such as what's happened with rivers in New Zealand and elsewhere? I think there's even an effort in the United States to rec- recognize a lake with, with um, the rights of a person. So talk about personification of a natural resource. Since colonial contact, a lot of these concepts of identity to non-human entities has been attempted to be erased. And this concept of recognizing our waterways as mothers also changes the way that we would use our water resources. So we've stripped its original identity and put water resources into a market-based allocation system that's very complicated, but also acts as we're commodifying this resource because we have to claim benefit of use or beneficial use, which usually means for production, agricultural production, anything that makes money, to, you know, say that more simply. But through our cultures and many cultures across the world, mothers are figures uh, in the family that nurture and care and provide and are the backbone to, to families and to clans. And so if we're reclaiming this identity as a person, as a mother, we understand that she is providing us abundance and it's up to us in order to manage and equitably divert and deliver water to the living cultures on the landscape. And bringing this back to your personal journey, how important has your lived experience been to the development of your water expertise uh, in this era of climate disruption? The water world is also a very white male-dominated field. You don't have people that look like me in a lot of these water talks. And so... I want to advocate more for a different type of water expertise in the room. It doesn't have to just be a hydrologist or an engineer or somebody that has that technical background. It can be a person that has 
ancestral and genetic lineage to the landscape has oral traditions and oral teachings and stories that also can help create and design mitigation and adaptation strategies for the future. And so we have to bring more diverse voices and more indigenous thinkers and water users into these water conversations in order to really understand how to create a system that have collective and shared values. And just one last question. How has living through climate change affected you on the deepest level? Climate change, personally to me, means that my people's culture and way of life is also at stake because we don't know fully what the effects of climate change are going to be in the long run. And as a, as a woman, an indigenous woman from Sandia Pueblo who has grown up here my entire life and has participated in our traditions and ceremonies, I want to ensure that we continue this lifestyle with our original instructions forever. And if we don't do something about our water, about our air, our soils, our non-human relatives, we won't have those teachings to pass on. And so climate change isn't just about protecting the natural world. It's also about protecting our culture and, and who we are because we've resisted against so many colonial forces for so, for so long. But this is a more colossal issue that's going to impact everybody. Thank you for sharing your story and insights, Julia. Yes, thank you very much for having me today. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about living with climate disruption. We just heard from Julia Faye Bernal, director of the Pueblo Action Alliance in New Mexico. Coming up, we talk about the mental health impacts of climate change and how we can harness feelings of existential anxiety toward positive climate action. Because, you know, at this late stage in the climate crisis, making it an issue of the heart, filling it with, you know, um, uh, guts and emotions can have tremendous power over continuously talking about graphs and, and policies and, and technologies and science. It makes it more human. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about living in a disrupted climate. Britt Ray is a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford University studying the health of humans and the planet. She's author of the forthcoming book Generation Dread and says the mental health impact of the climate crisis is felt far and wide. So we have robust data in the scientific literature that shows us that after extreme weather events, hurricanes, wildfires, as well as the slow creeping events like droughts, for example, or sea ice loss, humans are experiencing serious distress that can manifest as PTSD, anxiety, depression, sometimes suicide, especially when it comes to uh, heat waves, for example. But then we've also got the vicarious traumas. And so that's the indirect effects, the sense of just knowing what's happening, understanding and appreciating the direness of the predicament we're in, 
And that can manifest as what's now being called eco-anxiety, which the American Psychological Association has defined as the chronic fear of environmental doom. And we have other uh, phenomena such as ecological grief, which comes in when um, people feel a very profound connection to a space, to a wild place, to land, and are witnessing something erode there or part of their culture that's tied up in spaces that are deteriorating. It can seem like perhaps this is unclear to us, but it's not unclear. What is clear is that this has been an underserved issue in policy debates thus far on climate change. Earlier in this episode, we heard from Tamara Conry, who evacuated her home during the deadly campfire in California. We also heard from Julia Bernal, an indigenous woman traumatized by systemic oppression that have accumulated over generations, a chronic stress that is always present in her life. What do we know about fast and slow trauma and how they have different effects on people's well-being? So we do have evidence that shows in fast occurring events, such as heat waves, that we can become more hostile interpersonally to one another, as well as to ourselves. Um, Suicide rates actually are seen peaking on especially hot days, as well as hospital admissions for self-harm and intergroup conflict and aggression. Then there's other kind of slow creeping effects, such as Uh, sea ice loss, right? And um, there's wonderful research that comes from Ashley Consolo's group in Labrador looking at the effects on Inuit populations there whose identities are bound up in the ice. And so when when the slow degradation of that piece of your identity is, you know, witnessed before your eyes that can have profound effects on um, your sense of community cohesion and identity and and have other kind of um, indirect impacts such as pushing people to use drugs and alcohol more or to or engage in risky behaviors. In 2017, you felt eco-anxiety reached a personal high, and you've written about this, when you and your partner considered getting pregnant. About that moment, you wrote, quote, I turned into that annoying person who manages to bring up climate trauma in every discussion, congratulating friends who were newly pregnant became a tightrope walk tinged with tragedy. And when I cried about the climate, it hurt like the wind was knocked out of me. Tell me more about that. Hmm. Yes, I had my profound eco-grief and eco-anxiety awakening around the question of whether or not to have a child at a moment in my life when I very much wanted to start trying to get pregnant with my partner. And at the time, it was also before the student climate strikes, before we saw activist movements like Birth Strike and No Future, No Children, and others who are organizing around this idea that governments haven't made it safe for us to have children because of paltry action on the climate. Um, It was before many publications had done think pieces on eco-anxiety, and I felt extremely isolated to be connecting this personal decision, which is existential in nature, whether or not you're going to have a kid, um, to the alarming climate reports that I was seeing come across my desk all the time as a science communicator. And none of my friends or anyone I knew or anyone that I kind of saw out there through the media was saying, hey, this is infringing on on our reproductive decision-making. And I felt abject and freaked out to be having these considerations because, you know, I thought it was a fair question considering that reports were coming out, such as from the World Health Organization, saying that no country on the planet is protecting children's health given the climate crisis and the action they're taking. Um, And so I think the point I want to make is that when 
we first confront profound ego anxiety, it can be a hugely alienating experience because we're still living in this time when we don't have the social normalization of it. People aren't bringing it up at the water cooler. (laughs) It can be difficult to raise at your own family dinner table. So that's what started my research that turned into the book, um, Generation Dread, about the wide-ranging emotional, psychological, and mental health impacts of the climate and wider eco-crisis and looking to what we can do to cope. You did workshops with hundreds of people about parenting and the climate crisis. What were some of the takeaways? Many people just felt extremely relieved to have a place where they could voice their concerns because of the alienation factor we've already chatted about, um, that there's extreme pain and and very acute concern about how to parent in the climate crisis, what it means to prepare children for this future that they're inheriting. And this is particularly interesting, complex, and difficult for parents who haven't yet been able to manage their own ego anxiety. (laughs) Because in order to parent well, you need to get a a handle on your own existential feelings and how to find meaning and purpose in them and transform them and actually harness them for, for positive actions in the world. And I would argue more than just harness them, identify them as being superpowers and extremely valuable. Um, because, you know, at this late stage in the climate crisis, making it an issue of the heart, filling it with, you know, um, uh, guts and emotions can have tremendous power over continuously talking about graphs and, and policies and, and technologies and science. It makes it more human. Scientific American recently published an article by Sarah Jaquette Ray titled Climate Anxiety is an Overwhelmingly White Phenomenon. You wrote about this on your Substack, which I just subscribed to. Here's one quote from the original article in Scientific American. Is climate anxiety a form of white fragility or even racial anxiety? Put another way, is climate anxiety just code for white people wishing to hold on to their way of life or get back to normal to the comforts of their privilege? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that this argument is a very important one for us to be contending with. When we put a label like climate anxiety or eco-anxiety onto what's going on, it tends to identify a group of people who have been able to afford to only reach certain levels of distress because of environmental harms that they're now identifying with, as opposed to, you know, um, police violence, uh, intergenerational trauma from genocide, if you're an indigenous person, or, um, you know, just any other kind of oppressive factor that means that climate change is just one more layer of trauma on top of other challenges that you're constantly having to navigate and that weather away at your sense of emotional well-being. And so I have done many um, interviews for my book with people from a variety of communities who have faced intergenerational oppression who say it really angers me or it doesn't feel right that now there's this upspring of grief from people around eco-anxiety when that seems to identify privileged people and not take into account the wider expanse of interconnections that are historically and politically rooted that also make this crisis worse for us. And so, um, you know, there is a certain amount, of course, of of privilege that um, white people continue to occupy in environmental spaces that needs to be contended with. They need to, we need to make sure that we are making this movement an anti-racist one that takes these interconnections into account and doesn't simply 
turn inwards to look at our own anxiety. You know, we're not just looking at climate solutions in the ways that we like to talk about with policy and tech. We're talking about whole new ways of showing up in the world that are rooted in anti-oppression and injustice and, and anti-racism so that we can build the solidarity movements that we need, particularly as we're moving into vastly unequal relations around climate colonialism, you know, ways that hierarchies will be produced between the haves and the have-nots as things get more difficult. Because at the end of the day, it's not white middle-class people who are the most vulnerable. <laughs> and that needs to be crystal clear. Right. And yet their anxiety is real for them. You know, exactly. you can get into this kind of comparative, my trauma, my, I've heard of the term uh, from my kids, trauma Olympics, where my trauma is bigger than your trauma. And get into this kind of like, well, everyone's trauma is real for them. And the worst trauma is the personally experienced trauma. So that's a delicate thing to, not, to, not, to recognize, put it in context, yet not belittle or diminish it. Because for those people, it's very real. Exactly. It is very real. And it, it, it's. I think that these feelings, if you are a person from a certain amount of security and privilege, they can be a real gateway to learning how to partner with others who don't have that security. Because you can you can realize how honest that distress is that you're feeling. So a gate a gateway to empathy is what you're saying. It's yeah. a gateway to empathy, yes, and then to hopefully deeper than just an awareness that leads to empathy, real action, real change, real or reorientation in what you're doing to help lift up protections for people who are more vulnerable. Britt Ray is a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford University studying human and planetary health and author of the forthcoming book, Generation Dread. I want to share a, a personal experience with you. We're talking about these different traumas. I've been working full time, full bore on climate for nearly 14 years of many sleepless nights and see climate risks and impacts. Everywhere, I find solace in therapy, mindfulness, exercise, and wine, not at the same time. Uh, but last year, I was among the millions of people across the American West, maybe you were too, who breathed in wildfire smoke for weeks. Now I'm having difficulty breathing. I've been to doctors who said, yeah, it could be the fires. Tests have found nothing seriously wrong. I'm walking around wondering, you know, will this go away? I'm fine. I have health insurance. I have privilege. But I'm thinking about many people walking around with symptomatic and asymptomatic consequences. Maybe it's climate. Maybe it's not. I don't know. You know, is our healthcare system set up to diagnose and help people walking around with visible and invisible climate health impairments? Well, that is the main imperative that the health system needs to organize itself around now. And thankfully, there are some very formidable organizations that are coming together to say, hey, the climate crisis and associated environmental impacts are becoming the number one threat to human health. This is what the whole planetary health field is about. It's about articulating the intersection between the health of the environment and the health of the planet's people. And by galvanizing this awareness around the public health threat, not only is it, you know, potentially a better argument for, for getting people to care in general, as opposed to talking about polar bears and, and other such issues, um, but now we're in this moment of renewal and rebirth within within medical organizations to then shepherd their skills towards doing exactly what you're talking about, 
Right, it makes it much more personal. I'm, I have anticipated climate impacts. You know, my house might burn, it might flood, but the idea of kind of climate coming inside my body is it takes it to a whole different level to to experience it in that kind of embodied way. And humanity needs to transform all the systems around us: our energy systems, our transit systems, food systems, everything we do, make and touch every day. And if we need to change everything around us, it seems paradoxical to talk about looking inward for solutions toward our emotions. Explain how going inward can help us fix so many things that are external to us. Yeah, there's a there's a huge misconception that turning inwards or somehow focusing on the emotional and psychological aspects of this will be navel gazing. It will be detaching ourselves from the collective actions that we need to take. But actually, when we can fortify ourselves by becoming emotionally adapted to what's happening, finding ways to sit in the uncertainty of all of this threat rather than clamp down on the worst case scenarios or clamp down only on hope and techno-optimism without being able to reckon with the complexity and the long haul of being in this and what it's going to demand of us as thinking, feeling, you know, emotional creatures. Having that base setting allows us to become fortified and not burn out for those collective actions that we must take. Put your oxygen masks on first and then you you're better it. positioned to take care of people dependent on you. Yeah. Exactly. And socio-emotional resilience demands going inside. <laughs> it demands connecting with, you know, understanding yourself and transforming yourself so that you can transform your relationships with others and transform the world itself. As we wrap up, how can people recognize eco-anxiety in ourselves and others? And what are ways they can soothe themselves and people they care about? So everyone has their own anxiety sensor. You might feel uh, heart palpitations, sweaty palms. You might be noticing you can't sleep nearly as much. You might be, um, as I was, becoming that chatterbox who had to bring up climate trauma awkwardly in every single conversation and backyard barbecue I was going to. <laughs> you know, there, there's just a lot of ways in which it's affecting how we show up as humans. So you might identify um, any of what I've just said and then be able to Bring yourself into a space of increased calm and, and relaxation around it by coming together with others who get it. Basically moving past this disenfranchised space that we typically have on these topics where people don't give permission to them. People don't kind of mirror your concerns, but finding others, you know, there's there's many now emergent networks for helping people deal with the uncertainty that comes with uh, the climate crisis, like the Good Grief Network or the Council on an Uncertain Future. And then you realize, hey, there's nothing pathological about me. The society we're in is pathological. It's not taking action on this thing that's threatening, um, you know, livelihoods. And so it's a natural reaction. It's a it's a the cost of attachment to the world, and and it shows that you love things that are being threatened. And so it's you know it's a completely healthy response. You can feel proud to feel eco anxious when you're looking around at what's happening. But then there's ways that you can feel yourself. Um, back up with strength, not only through community connection, but you can take actions, you know, aligning your values with your actions has a, has a therapeutic effect to some extent. And then um, there's also just a lot of contemplative practices, you know, meditation, mindfulness, different things that you will know that work for you to bring you back to a base layer of stability, whether that's certain kinds of exercise or sport or, um, yeah, just treating yourself in a certain way when you get into a place of high emotional drama. Britt Ray, thanks for sharing your insights on Climate One. I really appreciate your work. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. 
Today, my guests were Tamara Conry, a former teacher and survivor of the 2018 wildfire in Paradise, California. Julia Faye Bernal, director of the Pueblo Action Alliance in New Mexico. And Britt Ray, a researcher at Stanford University focused on the intersection of mental health and the climate crisis. This week's show is part of Covering Climate Now, a global journalism collaboration strengthening coverage of the climate story. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Brad Marshland and Sarah Catherine Coxon are our senior producers. Our producers are Ariana Brocious and Tyler Reed. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Steve Fox is Director of Advancement. Arnav Gupta is our audio engineer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>